For 14 hours on August 27, 1776, roughly 22,000 men battled in the Brooklyn section of Long Island, New York. 15,000 soldiers in the British Army, under the overall command of General William Howe, had launched a three-pronged attack on the 7,000 American soldiers who defended Brooklyn. Two of the three columns distracted the Americans, while the third and largest column sneaked around behind them. By the time the Americans realized what happened, it was too late. All three British columns pounded the American lines and drove the soldiers back to their forts on a ridge of high ground known as Brooklyn Heights. Approximately 400 men, mostly from Maryland and Delaware, held off thousands of British soldiers while the rest of the Americans retreated to the forts. The courageous stand earned the men the nickname the Maryland 400. The 400 kept the battle from becoming a complete and total disaster, but the Americans had still been driven from the field. The survivors regrouped in the line of forts atop Brooklyn Heights and waited for the next move from the British. The British had more troops, but the Americans had the high ground and the fortifications, and that scenario gave British commander William Howe painful flashbacks. He had led the British attack on Breed's Hill outside Boston the previous year. It was the first serious engagement of the war, and it was just like the situation in Brooklyn. The Americans had the high ground and the fortifications. Howe and his soldiers had won the engagement, which was misnamed the Battle of Bunker Hill, but they absorbed heavy losses in the process, much heavier than they ever dreamed was possible. Now, in Brooklyn a year later, General Howe faced five American forts on high ground. American General George Washington had ferried across more reinforcements from Manhattan, and now he had roughly 9,500 men in Brooklyn. General Howe still had superior numbers, but he kept asking himself the question, what would it cost to take the American forts? The casualties would be high, there was no doubt about that. The American defenses in front of him were formidable, and that day, August 27th, Howe's men had been marching and fighting for more than 14 hours. Still, it was only early afternoon. If he wanted to press the assault, he had plenty of daylight left. And most of the American army stood before him. If he pressed the assault, despite the high casualties, he could not only win, but he could potentially annihilate the Continental Army and win the war, all in the same day. But General Howe decided the cost of an assault was too high. He chose to lay siege to the American installations. His men went to work digging trenches to slowly, steadily work their way toward the American line. And their work was made more miserable by two days of steady rain after the battle. On August 29th, when the rains cleared and George Washington looked out at the trenches, the British were within 600 yards of the American forts. Washington made the decision to live to fight another day. That night, the Americans lit campfires and made sure they burned all night. The soldiers remained at their posts on top of Brooklyn Heights and made sure the British soldiers knew they were there. But behind the American forts, Washington started quickly and quietly shuttling his men across the East River to Manhattan. They worked all night, and the operation wasn't perfect. But when dawn broke the next day, the only regiments who were left in Brooklyn were the ones who were stationed on the battlements to keep up the ruse. 
And then the Americans received a gift from Mother Nature. Thick fog rolled into Brooklyn and completely hid the Americans from view. When the fog finally lifted, the Americans were gone. From Black Barrel Media, Q Code, and the historic Camden Foundation, this is Mission History. I'm Chris Wimmer, and this is the story of the American Revolution, with a focus on the soldiers from both sides who fought at the critical battle of Camden, South Carolina. This is Episode 3, Dark Days. This podcast is brought to you by the historic Camden Foundation. You might be familiar with American revolutionary events like the Boston Tea Party, Bunker Hill, the ride of Paul Revere, and George Washington crossing the Delaware. But what about events in the South? The Battle of Camden was one of the darkest days for the American army, yet it was a crucial turning point for the American cause. Visit Camden, South Carolina at the heart of the Southern Campaign. The historic Camden Foundation interprets revolutionary history in cooperation with the Revolutionary War Visitor Center. Experience hands-on history at their 100-acre colonial town site. See the battlefield and the Longleaf Pine Preserve, where thousands fought and hundreds fell. Go to historiccamden.org to plan your visit and follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Historic Camden Foundation. The British had control of Brooklyn and Long Island, but they had not destroyed the American army. And now the campaign for New York really began. Over the next four months, the logistical nightmare that was the defense of New York showed all its colors on the American side. The untrained soldiers, the inexperienced officers, the relatively small size of the army compared to the gigantic task of defending Manhattan Island against a much larger force that had an armada of ships. A couple weeks after the battle on Long Island, the British crossed the East River and began the conquest of Manhattan Island. They landed at Kipps Bay and forced the Americans to retreat from Manhattan up to Harlem Heights. The Americans battered the British in the fight at Harlem Heights and it boosted American morale, but ultimately the Americans kept retreating. The Marylanders distinguished themselves again and were proving to be some of Washington's most reliable troops. And the battle also featured a new unit, Knowlton's Rangers, that continued a burgeoning tradition in American military history. Two weeks before the Battle of Brooklyn, General George Washington promoted Thomas Knowlton to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and instructed him to form a new unit. Knowlton assembled 150 men who would specialize in reconnaissance and espionage and would perform direct action missions when called upon. Knowlton's Rangers, as they were called, were the next evolution of Roger's Rangers. 20 years earlier, during the French and Indian War, Robert Rogers assembled a force of frontiersmen from New Hampshire. U.S. Army Rangers and Special Forces traced their histories back to Roger's Rangers, and sometimes even beyond back to units that were formed in the late 1600s. At Harlem Heights, Knowlton's Rangers were crucial to the American victory, though the victory came with an emotional cost. Thomas Knowlton was severely wounded in the fight 
and died of his wounds soon afterward. For the Americans, the moment of optimism after their first battlefield victory was brief. They had to keep moving. Three weeks after Harlem, the first naval battle of the war happened on Lake Champlain. Technically, it was an American loss. But the American commander, Benedict Arnold, succeeded in slowing a British advance and ruining their plans for attacking the colonial troops from a different direction. Two weeks later, in late October, a string of three defeats knocked the Americans down to their lowest point thus far. Washington's army kept retreating north out of Manhattan. Washington moved his main army off the island and onto the mainland of New York to a new supply base at White Plains. On October 28th, the British attacked the base at White Plains. The 1st Maryland Regiment and the 1st Delaware Regiment fought alongside each other again, just as they had at Brooklyn, and this time in combination with men from New York and Connecticut. They fought to defend a hill that became the centerpiece of the battle, but the overwhelming British numbers drove them from the field. The British won another victory, and the 1st Maryland Regiment suffered heavy losses, including two wounds to its commander, Colonel William Smallwood. Then the British dealt the Americans two humiliating blows. They captured the twin installations of Fort Washington and Fort Lee on the Hudson River. With the American main army retreating from White Plains, the only American force left on Manhattan Island was the garrison at Fort Washington on the cliffs above the Hudson River. The fort was about three blocks from the present-day location of the George Washington Bridge, and General Washington agonized over the choice of defending it or abandoning it. One of his most trusted subordinates, General Nathaniel Green, persuaded him to defend it. It turned out to be a disastrous decision. About 2,000 American soldiers tried to defend the fort against 13,000 British soldiers. The Americans put up a hell of a fight, and the British again suffered heavy losses. But the pattern repeated itself. The larger British force wore down the smaller American force. During the British assault, a woman named Margaret Corbin earned a place in American history. She was in the thick of the action alongside her husband as they defended Fort Washington. Soldiers' wives often traveled with the army, and at Fort Washington, Margaret's husband was an artilleryman who was killed in the battle. Margaret was severely wounded and left for dead, but a physician found her and helped her. She recovered, but her injuries left her permanently disabled. After the war, she became the first woman in American history to receive a soldier's lifetime pension. At the end of the fighting, most of the American soldiers were captured, including about 400 men from Maryland. General Washington could not afford to lose them. He called the failure a great mortification and quickly issued orders to abandon Fort Lee across the Hudson River in New Jersey. By December 1776, two weeks after the loss of Fort Washington and Fort Lee, the British had pushed the American army clear out of New York Colony. The Continentals crossed into New Jersey and then marched south into Pennsylvania as the weather turned nasty. Wind and snow battered an American army that was now ragged and demoralized. Their uniforms were threadbare and provided little protection against the elements. Many didn't have shoes, 
and they tramped across the cold ground with rags wrapped around their feet. The army made a crude camp in Newtown, Pennsylvania, about five miles from the Delaware River. Across the river, in Trenton, New Jersey, a thousand Hessian soldiers stayed warm in the homes they had commandeered. British General Howe had pulled most of his army back to New York City, and he scattered the rest across garrisons in New Jersey as a buffer between himself and the American army. The Hessians at Trenton were one of those garrisons. American General George Washington knew he needed to do something. For six months, since the signing of the Declaration of Independence in July, there had been virtually no cause for celebration. In the four months since the Battle of Brooklyn, almost nothing had gone right for the American army. The days had grown dark, literally and figuratively. If Washington didn't take some sort of decisive action, he risked losing his army and maybe the entire American cause. While Washington debated the possibilities, his men found inspiration from a source off the battlefield. As wind and snow battered the Continental Army, they huddled around campfires and absorbed the words of a man who had become a passionate voice of American independence. Thomas Paine published his second pamphlet of the year on December 19, 1776, in the Pennsylvania Journal. Ironically, Paine was British. He had emigrated to America just a year earlier with the help of Benjamin Franklin and others. Paine had befriended Franklin in London, and as Paine's political views became increasingly pro-revolution and anti-monarchy, he moved to America. In January 1776, during the long days of the siege of Boston, he produced a 47-page pamphlet called Common Sense. It trashed the concept of a monarchy and called for the colonies to declare themselves the independent republic of America. His skill with the written word was so powerful that there might not have been any other single person who was more responsible for rallying colonists to the revolutionary cause than Thomas Paine. In modern terms, Common Sense was a smash hit and a bestseller. By one estimate, 100,000 copies of his pamphlet were printed and circulated throughout the colonies. The guess is that that would be somewhere around 20 million copies today. But despite the success of Common Sense, the fervor of Paine's writings eventually wore off. Americans were joyous in the first half of 1776 with the reclaiming of Boston and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But then the Continental Army spent the entire second half of the year losing to the British on the battlefield. And now, as winter set in and the days grew dark, the revolution needed another spark. Thomas Paine took up his pen and wrote a new pamphlet called The Crisis. It opened with a line that has been memorialized in literary history and has been borrowed and adapted hundreds of times since it was first published in December 1776. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. 
Six days after those words were published, Washington led his most famous mission. On the night of December 25th, Christmas night, during a raging blizzard, Washington himself led three groups of soldiers across the Delaware River to attack the Hessians at Trenton. Two of the three groups were forced to turn back when their boats were crippled by the icy river and the worsening storm. Only Washington's group landed, but they charged the town and caught the Hessians by surprise. The battle became a house-to-house running fight that was one of the earliest examples of urban combat by American soldiers. The Continentals captured 800 of the 1,000 Hessians, and the rest were killed or wounded. It was a stunning and audacious triumph, and it was exactly what the American army and the American cause needed. One week after the shocking triumph at Trenton, in the first week of the new year of 1777, the Americans produced a similar feat at Princeton, New Jersey. At a critical moment in the battle, which took place right in the heart of the modern-day campus of Princeton University, George Washington personally led a counterattack that saved the American effort. The Americans claimed victory again and forced the British to retreat. Riding a new wave of glory, the Continental Army marched north to Morristown, New Jersey, to settle in for the rest of the winter. The victories of George Washington's 10-day campaign at the end of 1776 and the beginning of 1777 injected new life into the fighting spirit of the Americans. Colonies were able to pitch a renewed vision of hope to potential army recruits. Soldiers who had gone home when their enlistments expired now seriously considered signing up for another tour of duty. The army broke camp at the end of May 1777 to start a new fighting season. And, two weeks later, they had a new symbol to rally around. Congress passed the Flag Resolution, which declared that the official flag of the new American nation should feature 13 stripes, alternating red and white, and 13 stars on a field of blue, both of which would represent the 13 states in the Union. The Americans would need all the inspiration and all the reinforcement they could get, because the British were closing in from two sides. June 1777, New York and New Jersey. In the area of New York City and New Jersey, the main armies of the Americans and the British were engaged in a kind of tentative dance. British commander William Howe moved his army around the landscape in an effort to lure American commander George Washington into a fight. Washington had no intention of giving Howe what he wanted. Washington would only fight a battle on his own terms. Washington had received reinforcements, many of whom had been inspired by his victories at Trenton and Princeton, but his army was still much smaller than the British army. And his army still had fewer supplies and far less training than the British regulars. So the American army and the British army circled each other without engaging. And while the cautious maneuvers occupied the two armies in the New York, New Jersey area in the spring and early summer, a new British threat was moving south from Canada. British General John Burgoyne had been stationed in Quebec, Canada for little more than a year. It was his second tour of duty in America, 
and he had arrived in the spring of 1776 with the massive armada of British reinforcements. Most of those reinforcements went to New York and participated in the Battle of Brooklyn and the New York Campaign in the fall of 1776. The rest of the reinforcements went with Burgoyne to Quebec. In the spring of 1777, while British commander William Howe and American commander George Washington engaged in their chess match in the greater New York City area, Burgoyne marched out of Quebec far to the north. Burgoyne's army seized Fort Ticonderoga on July 5, 1777, without a shot fired. For the Americans, the loss was especially demoralizing. The capture of the fort two years earlier was the first success by an American force, and Colonel Henry Knox's mission to haul the cannons from the fort to Boston during the siege of the city was the remarkable feat that forced the British to abandon Boston. Now, the fort was back in British hands, and Burgoyne's army continued to move south through New York. His goal was to meet General Howe and the main British army in Albany. When they united their forces, they could effectively control the colony of New York, and more importantly, the Hudson River. With control of the Hudson, they would be able to cut off the northern colonies from the southern colonies. Burgoyne had pitched this idea to Lord George Germain before sailing to America. Germain was the Secretary of State for the American Department. He was responsible for managing the war in America, and he approved the idea. But now, with the plan in motion, Burgoyne didn't know that General Howe had changed his mind. Howe decided not to march north to link up with Burgoyne. Instead, he decided to go south to attack Philadelphia. Howe had spent a month and a half trying to draw George Washington into a fight, and then he decided he was done messing around. He was going to go straight at the heart of the colonies and capture the American capital. So, as Burgoyne was marching south after capturing Fort Ticonderoga, Howe was putting his army on ships at New York City and sailing away to begin a campaign against Philadelphia. And when the bulk of the British army was safely away from New York, the Americans saw a chance to destroy supplies and grab prisoners from the former British base of operations. The British had used Staten Island as their headquarters for the New York campaign. Now, with more than 15,000 British troops sailing toward Philadelphia, Staten Island was vulnerable. American Major General John Sullivan assembled a force of about a 1,000 soldiers, most of whom were from the Maryland Line. Maryland Line was a collective nickname for all the regiments from Maryland, and it was a common reference in the Continental Army. Regiments from Delaware were often referred to as the Delaware Line. Regiments from Pennsylvania were often referred to as the Pennsylvania Line, and so on and so on. So, in late August 1777, while Washington moved most of his army to Philadelphia, General Sullivan led the Marylanders, a Canadian regiment, and a New Jersey militia unit in an attack on Staten Island. Sullivan divided his force into three columns for the raid. Colonel Matthias Ogden led the first assault. In the early morning hours of August 22, 1777, his column rode across the narrow waterway from New Jersey to Staten Island. They surprised the British troops and pushed them back in a series of three swift engagements. 
Then Ogden's men retreated back to their landing spot and rode back over to New Jersey. Next, the other two columns attacked. A little after dawn, Sullivan and a French commander led the second column across the inlet to a landing zone a little north of Ogden's men. Sullivan's column quickly pushed back the British defenders and then moved toward the center of the island. On the northern end of the island, Brigadier General William Smallwood led his Marylanders in the third assault. But they ran into a problem right away. Smallwood's local guide led the Maryland units toward the front of a battalion of Loyalist militiamen instead of to the rear of the battalion, as Smallwood had requested. The Marylanders had lost the element of surprise, but Smallwood ordered an attack anyway. The Marylanders opened fire on the Loyalist militia and drove them back. With the militiamen on the run, the Marylanders carried out their mission. They started destroying supplies. Thus far, the raid was going well. But in the center of the island, British regular troops were reorganizing for a counterattack. Smallwood's Maryland column joined Sullivan's column near a village called Richmond at the center of the island. And that's where the raid turned against the Americans. The British launched their counterattack and sent the Americans running toward the landing zone that had been used by Ogden's column. The problem was, there weren't nearly enough boats for a force that size. As the Americans shuttled across the water in three little boats, Sullivan ordered two companies to perform a courageous rear guard action similar to the service performed by the Maryland 400 at Brooklyn. Between 100 and 150 men, mostly from the 2nd Maryland Regiment, fought back the British troops to allow the rest of the Americans to cross to New Jersey. A few of the defenders managed to escape. Many were killed, and most surrendered when they ran out of ammo. But they had done their jobs. The bulk of the raiding force successfully escaped the island and hurried south to rejoin the main army for the next major battle of the war. Three weeks after the raid on Staten Island, the war reached a decisive crossroads. Two campaigns happened simultaneously, and those were, collectively, the last major British offensives in the northern colonies. Fighting would continue in the northern colonies for another two years after the battles of September and October 1777, but the future engagements would be smaller and more sporadic than the dramatic battles of 1776 and the first half of 1777. But before the focus of the war shifted to the Carolinas and Georgia, a final reckoning was in store for New York and Pennsylvania. In New York, British General John Burgoyne was still marching south from Fort Ticonderoga with the expectation that he would meet General Howe in Albany. At the same time, Howe was sailing into Chesapeake Bay with the intention of capturing the American capital at Philadelphia. He had decided to leave General Burgoyne to his own devices, and that turned out to be a wonderful gift for the Continental Army. In the long term, that decision and that gift would pay huge dividends for the Americans. It would completely change the war and ultimately cost Howe his job. But in the short term, it would be demoralizing for the Americans. George Washington was about to experience deja vu. The situation that had played out in New York was about to play out in Philadelphia. Once again, Washington had the responsibility of defending an important American city 
against an overwhelming force. And again, he would lean heavily on the regiments from Maryland, but the task would be nearly impossible. British Commander-in-Chief William Howe loaded approximately 17,000 troops onto 265 ships and sailed south from New York. It should have been a relatively short trip to Chesapeake Bay, but the stomach-churning voyage took more than a month. The fleet was pounded by summer storms that caused severe seasickness for many of the soldiers and killed scores of horses. The Armada inched its way south, then into the mouth of Chesapeake Bay, then up toward Maryland. American officials initially thought Howe would anchor near the Patapsco River and unleash his force on Baltimore. But Howe bypassed Baltimore, sailed up to the northernmost point in the bay, and led the armada up the Elk River. The British finally dropped anchor at a piece of land that was called Head of Elk, or sometimes Elk's Head, which is now the outskirts of the small city of Elkton, Maryland. In the last week of August, Howe offloaded his weary men and supplies and began to march toward Philadelphia. From that spot, it was just 40 miles on a direct line to the American capital. But George Washington's army was half that distance away. He and his force of roughly 11,000 men were camped at Wilmington, Delaware. As the British organized themselves, Washington rode up to the top of a nearby hill to try to gauge the strength and movements of his enemy. He was flanked by Major General Nathaniel Greene, one of his most trusted officers, and the Marquis de Lafayette, a young French officer who would become a trusted and vital associate. They watched the chaotic scene down at the landing spot as General Howe pushed his men to make up for lost time. As some of the units started their march, another wave of severe storms ravaged the area. The thunder was deafening, and waves of torrential rain drenched the men and horses and supplies. The storms brought all activity on both sides to a full stop. When the weather cleared and the roads dried, the British continued their march. For the next two weeks, the British worked their way toward Philadelphia as American militia units harassed them and delayed their progress. On the march, two unlucky or unwise soldiers from the 71st Regiment of Foot, Fraser's Highlanders, left their regiment to forage for food. Foraging was essential for the British Army, because so many of their supplies had been destroyed during the sea voyage. But if the two Highlanders truly went off on their own, that was dangerous and proved to be fatal. They were killed in silence, and their bodies were discovered with their throats cut. On September 11, 1777, the day of battle arrived. The British Army was about 20 miles from Philadelphia when it ran into a roadblock that was the Continental Army. Washington's men were dug in along roughly seven miles of territory behind Brandywine Creek. The bulk of the army guarded the main road and the main crossing called Chad's Ford, and the rest of Washington's units were spread up and down the creek to watch the smaller crossing points. Washington thought he had them all covered, but he was about to experience another bout of deja vu. 
the Battle of Brandywine would be the Battle of Brooklyn all over again. American General Nathaniel Green's Virginia Continentals were stationed right at Chad's Ford. Just above them were the Maryland and Delaware units. Together, they were the center of the American line. Washington believed the British would march straight up the road and directly toward his strongest regiments. British General William Howe knew the positions of the American entrenchments, and he showed Washington exactly what Washington expected to see. Thousands of troops trudging up the road in a nice, neat formation. Those troops were roughly 7,000 Hessian soldiers under the command of General Wilhelm von Neifhausen. Just like at Brooklyn, the Hessians were in the center of the British line, and they were going to make a frontal assault on the American positions. And, just like at Brooklyn, they were a distraction in the early stages of the battle. While the Hessians occupied the American center, Commander-in-Chief William Howe joined General Cornwallis's column in a flanking maneuver. Howe and Cornwallis led 8,000 men up the creek to the north and crossed at an undefended spot called Jeffrey's Ford. The column was aided by fog and thick trees that hid its movements from the Americans. And, like Brooklyn a year earlier, Washington wouldn't know of the sneak attack until it was too late. In the early morning hours of September 11th, the Hessians began a heavy but restrained attack on the American center. They kept it up for hours to allow Howe and Cornwallis to sneak around the American right flank to the north. Throughout the morning, Washington heard conflicting reports about possible British troop movements to the north, but it was impossible to tell what was true and what was just panic. At about 2 p.m., Washington knew the reports were true, and he had a serious problem. General Howe's march had started at 4 a.m., and after 11 hours, his 8,000 troops had successfully made it around the American right flank and behind the American lines. They paused to rest, and then launched a furious attack on the American troops who were rushing to meet the threat. Some of those troops were cavalrymen who were led by a hard-charging Polish soldier named Kazimierz Pulaski. Pulaski was another officer who had met Benjamin Franklin in France and volunteered for service in the American army. Forty days later, Pulaski arrived in Boston and joined Washington's main army. Pulaski's status in the army was still uncertain because he was waiting for official approval from Congress, but when Washington realized the army had been outflanked, he granted Pulaski's request to take 30 horsemen and hold off the British advance. Pulaski raced away with his men and began a courageous fight. Washington sent more units, including the Marylanders, to try to stave off total disaster. The forces clashed near Birmingham Hill, and it was the second major engagement that pitted the Marylanders against the Highlanders. Two light infantry companies and one grenadier company of the Highlanders helped maul the Americans and drive them back. The Americans retreated several hundred yards to Osborne Hill and made a second defensive stand. The British rode their momentum and crashed into the American line. A British captain later wrote about the, quote, infernal fire of cannon. Trees cracked overhead. Branches shattered from the artillery. Musket balls tore up the ground. Five times the British drove the Americans from the hill 
and five times the Americans fought their way back. But there would not be a sixth. The Americans retreated toward their old positions around Chad's Ford, which they thought would be the centerpiece of the battle. American General Nathaniel Green and the Marquis de Lafayette hurried their regiments to support the retreating units. The Virginia Continentals under Green performed a similar service to the Maryland 400 at the Battle of Brooklyn. They opened their ranks and allowed the retreating soldiers to run through, then closed ranks and mounted a rear guard defense. But the removal of Green's troops from the center allowed the Hessians to cross Brandywine Creek and launch a serious attack. Over the course of two hours of hellacious fighting, the British squeezed the Americans until they forced the Americans to retreat from the field. The overall fight had been raging for more than six hours, and by late evening, as the Americans pulled back, the British chose not to follow. General Cornwallis's column, which had been marching or fighting for 14 hours, was thoroughly spent. With troops on both sides on the verge of collapse and night rushing up quickly, the fiercest battle since Brooklyn was done. The dead and wounded littered the ground for 10 square miles. Several British enlisted men and officers noted the determined resistance and courageous fighting of the Americans until they were forced to retreat under the overwhelming pressure of the British Army. One who was noted for particular bravery was Edward Hector, a black soldier with the 3rd Pennsylvania Artillery. The 3rd Pennsylvania was one of at least three units that had black soldiers, and during the melee, Edward saved wagons of guns and ammunition that were critical to the Americans. The Continental Army retreated northwest of Philadelphia in order to maintain a link with a supply depot at Reading, Pennsylvania. Members of Congress fled to York, Pennsylvania, and the British captured Philadelphia. British Commander William Howe's campaign had taken much longer than expected, but it was successful. He now controlled the American capital. But it was still September. There was still plenty of time left in the fighting season, and George Washington wanted to attempt to dislodge the British from Philadelphia before both sides settled in for the winter. And while Washington maneuvered into position for the final battle around Philadelphia, a ray of hope in New York was breaking through the darkness of continual American defeats. The campaign that would change the character of the war was unfolding outside Saratoga. It would be a serious blow to the British war effort and the end of a general's career. It would be a major American achievement and a highlight of the careers of three American officers. But those officers would have vastly different experiences over the next four years. One would be championed as a hero, one would be scandalized as a coward, and one would be branded a traitor. Next time on Mission History, George Washington's army makes a final attempt to drive the British out of Philadelphia before winter sets in. An American army and a British army clash in central New York in two engagements that end up becoming pivotal to the colonial war effort. The British High Command experiences a shakeup. America gains an ally across the Atlantic, and the war moves to the Carolinas and Georgia. That's next time on Mission History. 
This series of Mission History is a production of Black Barrel Media, Q-Code, and the Historic Camden Foundation. In this episode, you heard Jeremy Schwartz performing part of Thomas Paine's The Crisis. The series was researched, written, and directed by me, Chris Wimmer. It was produced by myself and Mandy Wimmer. Our executive producers are Kerry Briggs for the Historic Camden Foundation and Steve Wilson and Dave Henning for Q-Code. Marketing lead for Q-Code was Ellie Kotopish. Original music by Rob Valier. Featured violin by Kevin Huang. Historical advisors were Owen Lurie, historian with the Maryland State Archives, and Jim Pykooch, South Carolina historian and author. Their help was invaluable. Extra special thanks go to the team at the Historic Camden Foundation. Carrie, Stacy, Margaret, Catherine, Will, Lance, Len, Davey, Liz, Barbara, Arthur, and Marley. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.